0: I'm going to keep preaching the good news. Before the world was uh, sort of upended by COVID-19, I had planned to preach on the cross of Christ through the Sundays leading up to Easter, and I still plan on doing that. I assume that you're hearing all sorts of things about COVID-19 from every other source, resource in your life. And I don't think that we actually need to hear more information about the coronavirus, at least not from me. So I'm going to keep preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, because that's what we always need to hear, actually, whether we're in the midst of a global pandemic or not. We need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So before we dive in, let's pray. Gracious and living God, we ask that you would speak to us. I ask that you would use my voice to speak with your voice to your people. We need to hear you, perhaps now more than ever. So open our ears and soften our hearts that we might hear you and receive your words today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Late one night, when we were all in bed, Mrs. O'Leary left a lantern in the shed. Her cow kicked it over, then winked her eye and said, There'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. In 1871, a huge fire engulfed the entire city of Chicago. It killed more than 300 people, it destroyed more than 17,000 buildings, and for more than a century, Catherine O'Leary's cow got the blame for the Great Chicago Fire. At the time, Mrs. O'Leary was a small dairy farmer. She provided milk to her working-class neighborhood. And according to legend, Mrs. O'Leary was late milking the cows one day. And one of the cows responded by kicking over a lighted lantern. The fire quickly spread from building to building. A reporter who was one of the first on the scenes reported this tale false tale of Mrs. O'Leary's cow and a scapegoat for the Chicago fire was born, or I guess we should call it a scape cow. Hmm. For a century, Mrs. O'Leary's cow was the scapegoat which everybody used to place a blame for the Chicago fire. It turns out in 1997, a Chicago insurance investigator exonerated poor Mrs. O'Leary's cow. While the fire did start in her barn, the cow wasn't the culprit. It was a careless pipe smoker who discarded a match in the barn and set the whole city ablaze. A scapegoat is something or someone who gets the blame for something that he or she didn't do. That term scapegoat comes actually from the Bible, and we're going to see it applied to Jesus today. We're calling this sermon series Cruciform, the shape of a given life, because we're looking at what a cross-shaped life looks like. First of all, what did Jesus' cruciform life look like, and what does that mean for our lives? Ultimately, a cruciform life is a life that is given. It's a sacrificial life lived for the sake of others. It's an outward-facing life. It's a generous life. The British Anglican scholar John Stott captures what this series is all about, and you've heard me quote him often. Here it is again from his little book, Basic Christianity. He says, If we would master the ABCs of Christian love, we must trace our lives according to the pattern of Jesus. We must be shaped by the cross of Jesus. That's the pattern of Jesus. One of our core values as a church and a preschool is that we are Christ centered. All that we do and all that we are is in response to and is for the glory of Jesus Christ. Everything here revolves around Jesus, and everything about Jesus revolves around the cross. So, To be Christ-centered is actually to be cross-centered. Another Anglican-British scholar named J.I. Packer is worth quoting here. He writes in his book, In My Place Condemned He Stood. He writes this, True Christ-centeredness is and ever must be cross-centeredness. Competent Christianity depends on clear-headedness about the cross. Otherwise, we are always off-key. So in order to be clear-headed about the cross throughout these weeks leading up to Easter, we're asking two questions. What precisely did Jesus accomplish on the cross? And secondly, how does that shape our lives? How does what Jesus accomplished on the cross impact and shape the lives that we live, especially during these times of isolation and uncertainty and social distancing. What does this look like? If you can, I want to invite you to open your Bibles again to 1 Peter 2, verses 24 and 25. What exactly did Jesus accomplish on the cross? These verses, which you've just heard read, I'll read again, and they help answer the question. Speaking about Jesus, Peter says he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed for you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I want to ask three questions of this text. What does it mean to bear our sins? What does it mean that we're free from sin? And what does it mean to live for righteousness? So, the first question what does it mean that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross? You know, it's easy for us to think about someone carrying the guilt of their own sin. That's what our judicial system is based upon. If you break the law, you are guilty and you bear the weight of your own guilt. You have to pay the price. We get that. But what about bearing the guilt of somebody else? Or when we put someone in jail for something that they didn't do? That's a travesty. That doesn't add up in our minds. It just doesn't compute. So let me invite you to consider a fictitious scenario. Imagine that you have committed a terrible crime, a crime which is punishable with the death penalty. Imagine you were convicted of this crime and the full extent of the law was applied to you. You were sentenced to death. Justice says that you deserve the death penalty because of the crime you committed. Now imagine that a stranger voluntarily offers to switch identities with you so that he would be the subject of the death sentence and not you. Not because he believed you didn't commit the crime and that you're innocent. He knows you committed the crime, he knows you're guilty but he wants to save you from this punishment. He's offered to go in your place. I mean, that's scandalous, right? It's really difficult for us to wrap our minds around the idea that an innocent person would bear the full weight of the guilt of a guilty person. It's crazy. And that's what Peter is saying Jesus did For you and me. The idea of bearing the sins of the people in his body was not a new concept for the Jewish Christians to whom Peter was writing. The Israelite festival of Yom Kippur, you can read about that festival in Leviticus 16, it provides a paradigm for what Jesus did on the cross, his bearing our sins in his body. On Yom Kippur, which was considered the most holy, Of days in the Israelite calendar year. On Yom Kippur, the sin of the people was transferred to a scapegoat. This is where we get the term scapegoat from. It was a goat upon which our sin was placed, or the sin of Israel. So here's how Yom Kippur was celebrated among the Israelites. During that religious festival, the high priest would take two goats to the temple. He would slaughter the first goat and offer its blood as a sacrifice to pay for the sin of the people. I know, it's weird. The priest would then take the second goat, which was called the scapegoat, and he would place his hands on the scapegoat's head, and symbolically he would transfer all of the iniquities, all of the sin, all of the transgression of the entire nation of Israel onto the head of this goat. The guilt of the people was transferred onto it. And then the priest would release the goat into the wilderness where the goat would carry away the sin of the people. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus took upon himself the weight of our sin and carried it into the wilderness of the cross. Carried it away. Jesus literally became the scapegoat, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Are you still carrying that burden? Are you racked by guilt? Are you plagued by the wake of your own sin? The Bible says that this isn't necessary, that you don't need to live under the weight of your own sin. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let us cast off the weight. Let us cast off the burden of our sins so that we can run, so that we can run the race free from those burdens. That's the invitation of the gospel. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he take upon himself the sin of the world? Why would Jesus voluntarily carry that load into the wilderness of the cross? Well, verse 24 again says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, mark those two little words, So that, so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. So that's our second question. What does it mean to be free from sins? This is why Jesus bore the weight on his own body, so that we might be free from sin. But what does that mean? Because after all, you and I, we still experience the gravitational pull of sin. This author named Keith Miller wrote a great little book about sin. It's titled, Sin, Overcoming the Ultimate Deadly Addiction. Uh, It was not a bestseller. This is how he describes sin. Miller writes, sin is an all-encompassing self-centeredness. Sin expresses itself in our need to control people or places or things, in order to implement our own self-centered desires. Sin is the universal addiction to self. It develops when individuals put themselves in the center of their personal world in a way that leads us to abuse others and ourselves. End of quote. Sin is an addiction to self. Sin is what happens when we place me at the center of the universe. So being free from sin means that I am free from the all-encompassing addiction of self. I'm no longer addicted to me being at the center of the universe. I'm no longer addicted to satisfying only my own desires or controlling people in order to get my own way or telling white lies in order to make myself look a little better or gossiping about others to make myself look better than them. I'm no longer addicted to me. That, at at least in part, is what it means to be free from sin. I'm free to care about other people. I'm free to, as it says in Philippians 2, to look not only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm free because I have a new center. My center is no longer me. My center is Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be free from sin to live a life centered on Jesus, not on myself, so that I'm free to love Jesus and love my neighbors. And if that's not relevant right now, then it never is. In the midst of these challenging times, how can we be centered on Jesus and not on our own needs? How can we reach out and serve those who are in need. We've got to be creative because we can't do that in many of the typical ways that we do. I've reached out and called a number of people who I know might be struggling with loneliness to just check in on them. How are you doing? How can you be centered on Jesus and be an agent of Jesus' love to others, especially during this time? Lately, I can't stop singing the Rend Collective song that goes like this. He's our rescuer. He's our rescuer. We are free from sin forevermore. Oh, how sweet the sound. Oh, how grace abounds. We will praise the Lord, our rescuer. We're gonna sing that together one of these days soon. The good news gets even better, friends. Jesus doesn't simply set us free from the burden of our sin. He doesn't only open the prison gate and set us free. He does more. Again, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sin, we might live for righteousness. And that's our third and final question. What does it mean to live for righteousness? Well, righteousness has two senses to it. The first is this. To be righteous is to be in a right relationship with God. God and sin cannot coexist because God is perfectly holy. So long as we are imprisoned by sin, our sin creates a kind of barrier between us and God. Sin makes right relationship with God impossible. But thanks be to God, the Son of God bore our sins in his body away from us, took our sin away into the wilderness of the cross so that we no longer carry the burden or guilt associated with our sins so that sin barrier has been removed. In other words, Jesus, because of his work on the cross, puts us in a right relationship with with the Father, and that's a free gift. We can't, in and of ourselves, tear down that barrier. We can't put ourselves in a right relationship with God, but Jesus can, and he did. So the first sense of what it means to live in righteousness is to live in a right relationship with God, and that gift has already been given. The work necessary to empower us to live in a right relationship with God, that work has already been done. It is finished, said Jesus on the cross. But the second sense of what it means to live for righteousness is what we might call living uprightly, doing what is right. Uh, Sometimes we say things like, I'm going to do right by my wife. What we mean is that I'm going to do what is pleasing and honoring to my wife. I'm going to do what is right by my wife, what would make her happy. This is what living uprightly means. To live in righteousness is to do what is right by God. To live for righteousness is to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. So if we put it all together, living for righteousness means we have been put in a right relationship with God and are therefore called to live in a manner that honors God. So what are the implications for us? What does all of this mean for us? Well, it means a few things. First of all, if Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross, then we can live without guilt or shame or any of the sin that so easily weighs us down. Can you imagine the weight and guilt that poor Mrs. O'Leary must have lived with, thinking all along that it was her cow that burned half of Chicago? Can you imagine how different her life would have been if her cow would have been exonerated while she was still alive? How might your life look and feel differently If you lived without the burden of guilt because you knew that Jesus had bore all of it away in his body on the cross. To live without the burden of sin weighing you down is to live a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. Secondly, it means that if Jesus set us free from sin, we really can live freely. We can live free of whatever threatens to hold us captive. Is it fear or anxiety that holds you captive? Is it pornography or gambling? Is it narcissism or codependency? Is it an addiction to success or power or sex or image? To live free is an option that's put on the table for us. For Jesus has actually done the work to set us free. To live free from the power of sin is partly what it means to live a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life after the pattern of Jesus. Third, if you have been put into a right relationship with the living God as a free and undeserved gift, do you not want to live in a way that is right by the living God? Do you not desire to live in a way that honors Jesus, that pleases Jesus, that uh, puts a smile on Jesus' face? To do right by Jesus is to live a cruciform life. And a cruciform life A cross-shaped life is the very life you and I are invited into when we're invited to come and follow Jesus. It's the best life because it's true life. It's a Christ-centered life. It's a cruciform life. May it be so for you, for me, and for all who trust in Jesus' name. For the sake of his name, and to bring honor to his name. Amen. Thanks for joining our Christ Pacific Sunday Sermon Podcast. To hear more of our sermons, or to subscribe, or to learn how you can be engaged with what we're up to in Huntington Beach, please visit us at CPC.